Gordon Fee once said, Christian ethics is not primarily an individualistic, one-on-one with God brand of personal holiness. Rather, it has to do with living the life of the Spirit in Christian community and in the world. When God created the human race, He created us to be in fellowship, first uh, with Him, of course, and then with other human beings. We were created to be in relationship with others. In fact, in the beginning, when Adam was the only human being on the earth, God looked at the situation and He said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Genesis 2.18. Uh, that's certainly true in my case. I didn't last a day without my wife. So he made Eve and told the two of them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28. So God designed us to live and work and celebrate. At times to struggle and suffer and overcome. To achieve and fellowship and worship. He created us to experience all of that in community, through relationships with each other. And I'm not even sure the word relationship is adequate to describe the connection that we're to have with one another because we can have relationships at a very casual, non-committed level, right? But God says that spiritually we are actually one body. And then he shows us what that looks like throughout the scriptures. So John 10, 30, among other places, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Of course, in Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Trinity, the oneness of God in three separate persons, is a wonderful and powerful picture of individual persons existing together as one in perfect unity. And then following that pattern, when God created Adam and Eve, he said, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24, and of course Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. In other words, children are the result of that union, that oneness between the man and his wife. So just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, God created these other institutions where the relationships within them are to mirror the unity of the Godhead, namely marriage, family, and the church. In John 17, 21, as Jesus prayed for his disciples and for all future believers, which of course includes us, he prayed to the Father that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus himself prayed that all of us would be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. And yet somewhere along the way, believers in this modern era we're living in have gotten the idea that the church is optional, right? That if I'm treated right and if I like what it offers me, as long as I agree with everything that is said and done there and nothing else is happening that I'd rather do, well, then I'll participate in the life of the church, right? Unless there's something else I really want to do that day or someone happens to offend me. I may just sit that day out. So I actually have these conversations increasingly with people uh, when they, they ask me what I do and I tell them I'm a pastor, it's amazing how often I'll get a response to the effect of, well, you know, I love Jesus, just not the, the church so much. Well, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you don't love Jesus nearly as much as you think you do if that's your true con- conviction concerning the church because Jesus suffered and died in the worst possible way for the church. Okay? You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. 
you, you can't say, I love Jesus, but not the church. Well, then you don't love Jesus. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of church and reconcile that perspective with Scripture. The entire approach to Jesus and his church is scripturally incompatible. And then there are some who will argue that they're okay with the church, just not organized religion. As if the church is uh, somehow this indefinable, random, disorganized, unreligious population with maybe no pastors or formal leaders or teaching or structure of any kind with no expectations or requirements or discipline within the body. Well, again, I'm sorry, brother, but all of that which you reject is actually in the Bible describing the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, that's the, the purest and most complete picture of the first iteration of the New Testament church that we have. And this is how the church is described there. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So first of all, uh, they were together a lot. Secondly, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And then as the church develops throughout the New Testament, as we'll see in our story today and in many other places in Scripture, God gave to the church leadership and structure and training, that's all from God, to equip the church members so that we could do the work of the ministry through, by the way, the local church. I'm not just talking about the, the universal body of believers. People use that as a cop-out to say, yeah, 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 I'm involved with the church. No, we're talking about the local church that God instituted. The truth is, the local church is God's sole agent for spreading the gospel from Acts 2 on. So, so the church was never a part of God's plan for making disciples or one option for us to consider. No, the church is God's plan for making disciples. It is the church with its structure and layers of leadership, pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, according to Scripture in several places, including Acts 6, with its requirements for leadership, which is spelled out plainly in 1 Timothy and Titus and Acts, with its governmental processes and leadership roles and decision-making and ruling authority over the body and in the body, which is demonstrated in several places, including Acts 15, with its paid ministers, as described in many places in the New Testament, including 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14. Look, with its programs, there were organized programs to feed and care for the poor and orphans and widows, which is referenced in Acts 6, as well as individual local churches that supported other churches financially when there was need, which we see discussed in Acts 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, Romans 15. Uh, had formal processes for discipline within the church. Jesus spells that out in Matthew 18, and Paul references it again in 1 Corinthians 5. And yes, the church in some places, uh, some cities met in people's homes. That's true, but the church in many places, other cities often met in synagogues. At least in one instance, we know the church met in a school in Acts 19, and yet sometimes they met outside. In short, they met wherever they could to best accomplish God's purposes for the church. The fact is, it is the organized, structured, and decidedly religious church that was and is God's plan for reaching the world 
with the message of Christ. But there's a growing number of believers in our culture, again, who consider being a member of that organized, structured church as optional. Yet Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. So we're supposed to be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. Which means, listen, there's no true version of the Christian life where participation in the life of the church is optional. There's no true version of the Christian life where participation in the life of the church, the local church, is optional. You show me one example from the institution of the, of the New Testament church on, there isn't one. Because we cannot be one if we're not together. People say all the time, the church is not the building, it's the people. That's right, but it's, it's, that's true, but that's incomplete. The church is the people when we're together. We're not described as a dismembered body in, in Scripture with the foot over here and the hand over here and the chin over here and the ear back there. No, we are the body when we're together. Okay, We cannot be one if we're not together, living out this gospel on a regular basis as described and prescribed in Scripture. And yet the church in the West, by and large, has capitulated with this idea that if we're going to re retain people, we must figure out increasingly creative ways to entertain and occupy their time or else they're going to stay home, as if the gospel isn't enough to draw us and keep us together. Right? A.W. Tozer said, It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. And so the result of that is, in many cases, we've neglected the gospel in favor of trying to make the church more culturally relevant. And in the process, we've become more in touch with pop culture than ever before and more out of touch with the true power of the church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is expressed through us by His Spirit when we are, ready for this, together, unified in community with one another. Okay, as believers and followers of Christ, we're called to community, to gather together consistently unified by the Spirit of Christ in us. When Mary Beth and I started this church, uh, I, I had this burden to preach through the Scriptures, line by line, verse by verse, you know, book by book. And, uh, and I know I'm not interesting to look at. I'm, I'm a nerd, and I stand here behind the pulpit, and I script these. I spend 30 hours a week, and I script these sermons because I don't want to depart from the, from the Word and as it's been studied and revealed. And so, so I'm very careful to do that. And I stand here and read it to you. And I told Mary Beth, I said, you know, we're going to have 20, 30, 40 people forever, and that's fine. I'll build houses, and we'll make a living, and I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And you, you guys just keep coming. You know why? It's not because of me. It's not because of me. It's because people are hungry for the Word of God. And we've deprived them of it for so long in much of the Western church that I don't even think most people realize they're deprived of the Word of God. And so they come and they, they hear some goofy guy just reading the Scripture and they keep coming because they're hungry, not for my personality or my great looks. They're hungry for the Word. We're called to community to gather together consistently, unified by the Spirit of Christ in us. We're called to community. Listen, you can't have community Without unity, it's a little bit of a wordplay. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. You can't have community without unity. And that unified gathering, that community, is not just for our personal benefit and edification. It, it is for that. But it goes far beyond that. The Christian community that is the local church, when expressed in true unity, is our testimony to the world. 
We, I read this all the time, the statement by Jesus. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. John 13, 35. So according to Jesus, we testify to all people that we are who we say we are. We are actually his followers. In other words, that testimony about who we are in Christ is legitimized because of our love, our oneness, our unity with each other. I say it often. Our testimony is at the mercy of our unity. Our oneness in Christ. And so without unity, there's no community. Without community, there's no testimony. And without a testimony, we cannot make disciples. And so the fulfillment of that great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples of all nations does not hinge upon the passion and sincerity of individual believers who are determined to practice personal evangelism but have little to no interest in the organized church, as if the church is optional at best and a nuisance at worst. No, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is realized through the local church, the community of believers that every one of us is called to. Certainly, listen, within that, there's a very important place for personal evangelism by people who are passionate and sincere, absolutely. But even that happens as a result of the ministry of the church, as we're going to see in our text this morning. And, and the point of all this is hopefully to inspire us to renew our commitment to the common calling that we all share. It's a call to community as we, this local church, not only celebrate what God has already done through us the last 11 years here, but more than that, as we look ahead to all that is before us, because what is before us is going to take every single one of us to accomplish. And so before we begin the new sermon series, again, just today we're going to talk about the essential role of the church in the life of every single believer as we forge ahead this year together into greater ministry opportunities and probably greater challenges than ever before. Opportunities and, and challenges, by the way, that can only be met by a unified body of believers working together. You know, I've, over the, all of the years in ministry, I've seen uh, plenty of churches, sadly, close their doors, kind of go under. I've never seen that happen because of outside forces. No matter what the, the church was up against, in the community or the culture or whatever is going on. I've never seen a church fold up because of outside forces. Every single church I've ever seen have to close its doors permanently happen from within. When the body becomes, uh, is not unified, becomes disjointed. So let's turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4. We're going we're to focus on the first 16 verses of that chapter this morning as we talk about the call to community. Uh, just to set the scene here before we read, the city of Ephesus uh, on the western coast of the Roman province of Asia, or Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, it was a wealthy port city. It was a very uh, influential place. It was a learning center with a lot of pagan religion. But we also know from Luke's writings in Acts and from the first century historian Josephus, we also have uh, inscriptions uncovered by archaeologists that there was a healthy Jewish population there as well. So quite a mixture of cultures, religions, ethnicities, along with very educated and wealthy people, right down to very uneducated and very poor people, all in this same city. Uh, Strabo, he's a Greek geographer and historian who lived in Asia Minor from about 64 BC to AD 24. Uh, he described Ephesus as, and I'm quoting, the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. The Romans called it the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. So this is a principal center of commerce, culture, and religion for the ancient world. Not entirely different from some of our modern cities in the West today. And Paul writes this letter to the church there in Ephesus in A.D. 62 while he's imprisoned in Rome. Okay, so let's read it together. Chapter 4, 
Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul starts out with, uh, I therefore, meaning because of what I've just written in the previous chapter, which was Paul describing to these Gentile Christians that they're now fellow heirs, he says, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3, 6. In other words, they too are now sons and daughters of God. So Paul says, I therefore, meaning because you're now called to be a part of the same body of Christ, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul says, because you too are called to the community of followers of Jesus Christ, it's time to act like it. So walk in a manner worthy of that calling, despite the endless distractions in this city, in your culture, which I think we can certainly relate to. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And the word walk there, uh, by the way, in the original Greek, is the word peripeteo. It refers to how a person conducts their entire life, how you live out your life, how you occupy your time. Paul describes it as a life of humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about their calling to be in community with one another and what that looks like. And what is so powerful about the fact that Paul, of all people, is telling them this is the reality of his own present circumstances, which would, for most people, leave us with zero desire for humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with others in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, remember, Paul's writing this, this letter from prison for crying out loud and for what for some terrible heinous crime no he's in prison which isn't like prison in america today paul is chained in prison for preaching the gospel of humility and gentleness and patience bearing with others in love eager to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace it's not very fair for paul but no matter his circumstances even when he was being unfairly and unjustly treated at times hunted persecuted, threatened, beaten, stoned, even thrown in prison. Through all of that, Paul was still able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he'd been called, which was a call to unity as he lived out his life in community and he expected his fellow believers to do the same because unity in the church is not dependent upon our circumstances. It is, however, dependent upon community which Paul demonstrates here so powerfully. The reason that Paul was able to do what he did, the way that he was able to look beyond his immediate predicament and find the strength that he did to carry on through the most unbelievably difficult circumstances, it came by way of the Holy Spirit working through the believers who surrounded him throughout his life in Christ. Paul derived his strength to continue from the community of believers that he was a part of. Even at the end of this letter, he refers to those who are with him, supporting him in his imprisonment. Okay? So regardless of our circumstances, we're still called to community with other believers, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that means even when we don't feel like it, even when it's not convenient, even when we have other things we'd rather do, even when trouble comes our way, when we're at odds with other people in the church, we still walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But that can only happen as you participate in the life of the church. None of the disciples could have gone on to do what they did without the help and support and love of the local church, not one of them. Likewise, listen, when life isn't going our way, 
One of the first things that people will often do is pull back from the church. They isolate themselves, which is exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. And we're not just talking about Sunday morning services here. Sundays are a part of the life of the church, but just one part. There are six other days of the week when the heart of the church is still beating. But if we don't tap into that heartbeat, if we allow our circumstances to keep us in isolation from the church for the majority of our lives and then maybe show up on Sundays when it's convenient, we're not only not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, but we're also not receiving everything that we need from the church to enable us to overcome the very circumstances that we've allowed to isolate us from the church in the first place. Listen, This is another one I hear all the time. If you think me and Jesus is enough, you're mistaken. If you think it's just me and Jesus is all I need, that's not what Jesus said. The church, which by the way was his idea, right? It's his creation. It's his bride. It's his plan for the world. The church is his doing all the way. The church is his primary means through which he cares for us. That's why we're called to community, not just on Sundays, but to live out our entire lives in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because that is the conduit through which we receive all that he has for us, as we'll see in a moment. That's why we meet throughout the week in people's homes, here, lots of other places around our town and our city and this community, and we have our Save One ministry, Real Connections, Reach, Firm Foundation, Solutions Recovery, all these other ministries going on all through the week because we want to stay connected in community, breaking bread with glad and generous hearts, devoting our time to the teaching and the fellowship and to helping and supporting and praying for one another as described in Acts 2. That's why the local church exists. So we have, we have ministries here for men and women and kids and families and students and singles, not because we need one more thing to do. No, we have ministries that meet at all different times so that we can stay connected to the community of believers that every single one of us needs in order to do and become all that he intends for us to do and to become. But all too often, too many people allow their circumstances to get in the way of community and they isolate themselves, right? I, well, I can't go to community group. I have too much to do. I can't go to church on Sunday because there's someone there who doesn't like me. Listen, there's always someone here who doesn't like me. I come every week, so I want to hear it. I can't serve on a ministry team because Sunday's the only way that I don't have to be doing whatever the thing is you want to be doing, right? Listen, we can always find reasons to not engage in community with other believers. The problem with that is our calling is a calling to community. You understand there are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. Paul traveled with a team of believers. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. The early church members were together as we've seen a lot, certainly a lot more than two hours a week because being a member of the church of Jesus Christ is more than a two hour commitment. It's a lifelong, every moment of every day commitment where we serve and love and worship and fellowship in community with other believers. Whether we know it or not, or accept it or not, or like it or not, every single one of us needs that in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so when our circumstances get in the way of that, and they will, they absolutely will, We have to understand what Paul understood so well, that God is sovereign, he's in control, and he's working in the midst of those very circumstances. So instead of pulling back, press in. Just listen to how Paul describes his circumstances, keeping in mind he's a prisoner of the emperor Nero, 
brutal ruler in Rome while he's writing this. In Ephesians chapter 3, instead of saying, I, Paul, a prisoner of Emperor Nero, he introduces chapter 3 with, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, instead of saying, I, therefore, a prisoner in Rome, Paul introduces the chapter with, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And some translations say a prisoner in the Lord. See, Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Nero in Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus in the Lord. Now just think about how that would change your perspective concerning some really difficult and seemingly unjust circumstances that you may be experiencing. How, how easy could it have been for Paul to say, you know what? You know what? Forget it. Every time I try to do something good for God, right, it backfires and I end up on the short end of the stick. And Incidentally, I hear some version of that all the time from people who will reference to me things that happened to them five, ten, even twenty years ago in a church as the reason they've sworn off church. There are people who say, I'm done with that ministry because it's not, it's not going how I wanted it to, or that person offended me. Look, listen, you may well have a legitimate complaint that needs to be addressed. Some of the worst hurt I've ever experienced in my own life has been in the church. In fact, go to any local church and the one person who's been hurt more than anyone else is the pastor. It's just a fact. Okay, those may be legitimate complaints, but even when you're clearly in the right and someone else is clearly in the wrong, that shouldn't drive you away from the church. Paul was beaten and thrown into prison for doing exactly what God called him to do. And yet he saw it for what it was. It was actually God who led Paul through some really difficult circumstances in order to accomplish his will in Paul and through Paul, which also meant Paul's great need to remain in community with the church, the local church, through all of it, so that he could receive everything he needed in order to get through those difficult circumstances. And I'm just telling you, we need that kind of perspective today because whatever your circumstances, it may be God trying to shape you, teach you, mature you, use you to accomplish his purposes in you. But that's never going to happen if you pull back and isolate yourself from the church. You may think you're doing fine. If you isolate yourself from the church, you may feel like, hey, things are going just fine. The truth is you don't know what you're missing because you don't know all that God has for you because you're not uh, invested in the local church to receive it. And that's the only way you will receive everything that God has for you is through the local church. And I say that because that's over and over and over again the only thing we see in the New Testament. Right? You won't receive all that you need from God to get through your difficult circumstances outside of the community of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it's so important to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace within the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, whoever cannot stand being in community should be aware of being, uh, should beware of being alone. You're called into the community of faith. The call was not meant for you alone. You understand whatever the calling is on your life that God has put in your life, that calling isn't just for you. This isn't just your personal pet calling to express however it suits you best. No, that calling is to be expressed through you for the body of Christ. Let's keep reading, verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So seven times in three verses, Paul uses the word one. Three of those instances point us to the Holy Trinity. He says there's one spirit in verse four, meaning the Holy Spirit. 
There's one Lord in verse 5 referring to Jesus Christ and one God and Father in verse 6. And then with the other four iterations of that word one, Paul outlines our relationship as the church to that holy trinity. He says we're one body, which he relates directly to the one spirit in verse 4, which is not a random connection. The reason there's only one body is because there's only one spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So the same spirit lives in all believers and followers of Christ, which makes us one body, which is why, incidentally, you can be halfway around the world and meet another believer who was a complete stranger the moment before you met them, and in an instant you're able to feel at ease and even connected to that person at a deep level. I, mean, I can tell you a story. I was uh, on the other end of the world. I was in Africa and uh, surrounded by people I don't know who were not believers and uh, in, a, in a rough area and I met a believer and it was like instantly, like we're family, right? And there was a connection, a deep level connection. Why? Because we share the same spirit living inside of us. And Paul says, then there's one hope, one faith and one baptism which he relates directly to one Lord, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope and faith and baptism. And then he says, there's one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, with the all referring to all of us, the one true believing Christian community, the family of God. And so Paul is driving the point home here, that we all belong to the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same Father as one body. Once we become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are members of the one true church, which is not only a profound truth for us to grasp, but it also means that unity in the church is not just a function of what we do, it is a function of who we are. Right? We're all, every one of us, a part of the same body, which is why nothing is more important to the body than learning to function in unity. Just think about your own body, right? If, you're, if your foot is broken, your body's not working together as it was designed to. So, so what do you do? You look down at your foot and you say, hey foot, you got a problem, buddy. You need to go get fixed. Uh, so you know, let me know when you get it all straightened out so you can come back and be a part of the body again. No, we don't do that. Because no matter how broken the foot may be, it's still a part of the same body. It doesn't cease to be a member of the body because it's broken and hurting. It doesn't cease to be a part of the body because it's not performing like it should. It's still as much a part of the body as it always was because it was born into that body. In fact, the rest of the body feels the pain of the broken member, and so the whole body yearns for that foot to be healed and strengthened and restored back to its original condition, or maybe even better than before. So what happens? The rest of the body begins to work together to fix the part that's broken, right? The rest of the body takes up the slack. The other foot and the other leg and the other hip begin to hold the extra weight that's not being supported by the broken foot. The arms and the hands and the fingers change the dressings on the wound. They bind up the broken parts. They do therapy on the hurting member to help it heal and get stronger. Every other part of the body plays a critical role until that foot is restored and doing its job again, and then it gets its responsibilities back to carry the portion of the weight assigned to it so that the whole body can function as it was designed to. The Bible says we're one body. So when one of our members is broken, why do we say things like, hey, I'll be praying for you. Let me know how that works out. I'm sending good vibes. 
I hate that. I hate it. Listen, keep your, keep your vibes. I don't want them. I don't, I don't want your vibes. I'm not interested. You keep them. You pray for me. Please, keep your vibes to yourself. I can't stand it. It's, it's, it's so silly. But we say things like that. I'll be praying for you. I'm sending you, you know, good thoughts and good vibes and happy thoughts, whatever. Let me know how it works out, you know. Or when someone's broken, uh, often we can treat them like they don't belong when they're broken. Why do we do that? Right? If that broken member is a true believer, a true member of the body, then no matter how broken they become, they're still a member of the body because their unity with the rest of us is not determined by how well they do their part, by how well they perform. No, they're a part of us because they were born into this body by the grace of God through their faith in Him. So they're a part of us simply because of who they are, a child of God, our brother or our sister in Christ. And it's our job to feel their pain and take up the slack when they can't carry their own weight and to help restore them by caring for them and helping them until they're healed and whole and maybe even better than before. And then they can take more responsibilities back and begin again to carry the weight of the body that is assigned to them. Okay, Our calling to this community of faith is an eternal one. It's not something that we, we step in and out of depending on how we feel at any given point in time. It's not something that we banish others from just because they're broken. No, we're called the community simply because of who we are. And as individual parts of the same body, we each have different roles and responsibilities to play according to the gifts and talents that God has put inside each one of us, which is why it's so important that we're unified, all working together as he intended us to, because the body needs all of the individual parts to be working as designed, so as a whole it can function to its maximum potential, as we'll see. Francis Schaeffer said, Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic, the final proof. Let's finish our text for today, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love so paul quotes psalm 68 here in verse 8 which was a victory hymn because when kings would go off to war and were victorious upon their return they would bring the spoil gifts back to their people from winning the war and that's what paul is likening the work of christ to here he says that jesus descended to the earth he overcame death in the grave and then ascended as the conquering king to the Father's right hand. And so now he gives gifts to each of us, different uh, gifts to different people. 
And then he says that some of these gifts, namely those who are a part of the church's structure and leadership that we talked about earlier, are there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're all different. We're supposed to be. And we all have different gifts. That's how he designed it to be. And then he gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To help us hone those gifts and grow us as members of the body into a unity of faith and knowledge of Christ and maturity and fullness of Christ, even though we're all different with very different gifts. So just to be clear, oneness in the body of Christ is not the same as sameness in the body of Christ. You follow me? Oneness is God's design for us. Sameness is not. In other words, unity in the church is not inhibited by our diversity. It's actually enhanced by our diversity. That's why he gives us different gifts to different people, so that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which includes a lot of very different joints, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're all equipped with different gifts, and we need that plurality of gifts in order to work properly so we can grow up in love and in unity. And yet it's more than just growing up into maturity and fullness and unity and faith and knowledge for our own personal benefit. Again, every single gift that is given to you and every single one of us has been given those gifts by Christ. Every single one of those gifts was given to you for the express purpose of serving others. I've, I've said this before, the apple tree doesn't consume its own apples, right? God gives the tree what it needs to produce apples. Who are the apples for? Everybody else around it who needs its nourishment, right? We produce fruit for other people, not for ourselves, right? Those gifts are given for the express purpose of serving others, which means if you're not serving the body, the local church, with the gifts God has given you, then you're not using the gifts that God has given you, certainly not properly, which is not only harmful, by the way, to you in the long run, it's also harmful to the body. Why? Because we need the unique gift that only you can provide. So listen, confession time. I'm a pretty patient guy. Uh, the reason I'm a patient guy is because I desperately need people to be patient with me most of the time. Uh, my wife will attest to that. Uh, so I'm just going to confess to you that one of the things that I really struggle with as a pastor are folks who only come to the church when they need something from others. Now, I'm talking about believers, and I'll explain what I'm saying, members of the body of Christ, okay? I'm not talking about the world. We don't judge the world. We don't expect to receive anything from unbelievers. We're just supposed to love the world with the love of Christ. No questions asked, no prerequisites, no conditions. Just show the love of Christ with every word, every deed, every breath. So if someone comes in here and, and needs something, one of my favorite things in the world, one of my greatest privileges as a pastor is to help people who are in need, both believers and non-believers, people within the church. I love it. I love when people come to me with needs and we're able to meet the need. It's like the great, I'm on cloud nine. I love it. Believers and non-believers, okay, hear me. Uh, this, this is how the world should experience Christians. In fact, we should be known for it. That's our testimony that Jesus talked about that'll help, help us bring others into this community of faith by his leading. It's the way we love each other and, and others outside of here. And I'm, I'm good with all that. What I struggle with 
are believers, followers of Christ, members who have been born into the body who only show up when they want something from the church. And we've had people come and, you know, we've, we've uh, paid for surgeries and then people disappear, right? They, they, they take advantage of what the church has to offer and then they're gone. They invest nothing into the church. And I've, I've chased a few folks down and said, hey, what gives, man? Like, why do you not participate in the life of the church 99% of the time? Why do you only come when you, when you want something from us? And, and shockingly, one of the answers I've gotten often is, well, because I don't have anything to offer. That is patently false. Because every one of us has gifts. You may not know what they are, but you have them. Not only gifts uh, to offer, but gifts that you're responsible to use within the local church in order to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. P- people say to me all the time, I don't, I don't know if I'll be there pastor or I can't be out there all the time or I don't know if I'm going to come I don't know if I'm going to become a, a part uh, just I'm in, a, in this place in my life right now or I don't need this it isn't about you all the time it's about the rest of us who need you it's not just about you needing the church you understand what I'm saying so when we refuse to answer that call to community when we fail to use the gifts that have been given to us to serve the body we're not only failing ourselves we're failing the church we're failing each other And it's a big, big deal because the church needs, it needs every single one of us to be engaged in ministry using the gifts given to us. And people say to me all the time, well, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know how to express those gifts. I don't even know what the gifts are. How am I supposed to know how to get involved in a local church? How do I figure out what my calling is in life? It's a simple answer. Start serving. Start serving. Okay? you know, 20, 30, 30 plus years ago, I knew God called me to be a rock star and there's no question about it. If you'd said you're going to be a local church pastor of a small church in Travelers West, South Carolina, I'm like, yeah, take a hike, buddy. This was nowhere on my radar. But I knew I was supposed to be involved, invested, serving in the local church. So my wife and I, young married couple, said, hey, what, what do you want us to do? Well, serve in the nursery, changing diapers. Not my calling. But we did it faithfully for years. And then we worked with kids in kids' church for years. And then we worked with youth groups. And then we worked in men's ministries and women's ministries. And I came on staff at churches and began to serve as a worship pastor and a youth pastor and then an associate pastor. And then all of a sudden, we're planting a church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. This is nowhere on my radar. But you know how the calling was, uh, was realized in my life? Through serving. With no clue what I'm supposed to be doing or what he created me for. Just listen, if you don't know, just start serving. There's plenty to do around here. We could plug you in today. Just start serving if you don't know, okay? Uh, why? Why do we need to be engaged in ministry? Why do we need to be using our gifts? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It's about our spiritual maturity. And so just because, listen, you may be different. Maybe you don't feel like you fit in because you don't have the background or upbringing or charisma or the creativity or the resources or whatever you think other people here might have. That doesn't mean you have nothing to offer. 
It just means you're different, which means we need you all the more. You see, nothing can be further from the truth. The unity of the church is not inhibited by our diversity. It is enhanced by it. The church needs different people from different backgrounds with different gifts, all working together in this community of faith. If we're to work properly, building ourselves up in love so that we can reach the lost with our testimony. It's going to take every one of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the fellowship. Okay? There's no true version of the Christian life where participation in the life of the church is optional. You cannot stand alone in your life and accomplish God's purposes for your life. You cannot serve outside of the local church and accomplish his purposes. You you cannot live in spiritual or physical isolation from the church and accomplish his purposes. Now, the only way that you can fulfill the calling in your life is through the community of believers that is the local church. Now, of course, you'll be sent out. You go into work and you travel and you do all the things you do in life and you minister everywhere you go. But that is all rooted and grounded and expressed through the local church. It's why it's going to take all of us this year working together to accomplish what God has set before us to accomplish. Because there isn't one of us alone who can get done what needs to get done. I can't do it. The staff can't do it. Our leadership can't do it. And you can't do it. But you know who can do it? We can. We can as long as we do it together. That's why we're going to fast and pray for 21 days together. Because what he's calling us to this year, I'm telling you, it isn't going to happen if we're not together. We desperately need a new facility to bring all of our people and from the different services and different locations together. We, we want to bring our kids in to the same roof. We're losing families every year. I've told you about that. We We want to create space. This is the biggest thing for me, for Christian education. Sunday school. Five to seven adult Sunday school classes to train in discipleship so that we can send one another out. The gifts are in the house. I know five to seven of you right now, off the top of my head, are more than equipped to teach those classes. The giftings are here. Right? We, we have not an inch of space left in all three buildings or at our other campus. We desperately need a new facility for Christian education, for making disciples, so that we can train people to reach the lost, to minister to the broken and the hurting, to expand our ministries to solutions recovery, to reach our community and beyond for Christ. It's going to take all of us together. And I don't know how God's going to accomplish it. He's given us a clear vision, a clear vision but not the provision. I believe the provision is in the house. But we have to see how God's going to accomplish that through us. It's going to take all of us to get there where he's called us to be. It's going to take all of us to get there. And we're going to have to do it together. Let's pray.